0: This podcast is brought to you by Schweitzer Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit any of the links in the description. And now, please enjoy the message. Welcome today, my name is Spencer. So glad that you're here. Today is part five of our series called The Truth About Lies. And if you haven't been with us, here's the premise of our series. There is a battle for truth within each of us individually and all of us collectively. We see this battle for truth front and center every single day. You hear people talk about situational ethics, moral relativism. If you uh, watch the news, there's all kinds of stories about misinformation and disinformation. People use platitudes like you gotta live your truth. Truth has become subjective, personal, individual. Some people say we live in a post-truth society. But as Christians, we believe that truth is set. It's given to us by our creator, our father in heaven, revealed in Jesus, his son, that he himself is the truth. And so this battle for truth is not just a battle for ideas, but rather this battle for truth is spiritual in nature. In fact, one of the things we see in the Bible is that there is one who's actively seeking to deceive us. And this deceiver goes by many titles in the Bible. The devil, the Satan, the tempter, the snake. And what we see from the very beginning of the Bible is that one of the devil's main strategies to wreck our lives is to deceive us. So let's go to Genesis chapter three. This is where we're starting each week in the series. And um, here's one of the deceptions that we see um, from the very beginning of the Bible. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, each week we start in Genesis chapter three because if you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis three is a pivotal moment in the Bible. Before this, life is perfect. This is God intended it to be. It's the Garden of Eden creation, humans, everything is flourishing. After Genesis 3, this this hinge point, all of the death and destruction and dysfunction that we see in our world, this is where it comes from. We trace it all back here to Genesis 3, this rebellion, this sin against God. And as we trace back that rebellion and that sin, what we find at the heart of this is the choice to believe a lie. It's deception. And so each week in the series, what we're doing is we're just lifting up these deceptions. And as we do so, these, these things that the snake says to the woman, what we find are some common and predictable deceptions that plague all of us. And so today, as we just keep working our way through the lies that the snake says to the woman, we come to this next line where the the snake says to this woman that when she eats the fruit, when she disobeys God, when she goes her own way, that she will quote, that you will be like God. That's the line. You will be like God. This is a, This is the promise. You will be like God. Now, to me... This is a really strange deception. You will be like God. Because aren't we already like God? I mean, as I say that, does anything come to mind for you? For me, I can't help but think of Genesis chapter one. Just one chapter before this, or two chapters before this, at the very beginning, the first thing the Bible says about people. On the sixth day of creation, when, when people are created, this is how the Bible describes this, listen. Verse, chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the First thing the Bible says about people is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. But the snake comes along and he challenges that specific point. It's it's like it's like the heart of this deception is what does it mean to be human? Or maybe to say that more personally, who am I? What is my life supposed to be about? What is my purpose? What is my identity? And of course, that word identity is a huge word that we use in our culture today. Now, the Bible's answer to this question, who am I? It is crystal clear. You are an image of God bearer. You are one who is made in the image of and li- the likeness of God. This is who you are. Before we are anything else, we are image bearers. This is who we are. So, So what does that mean to... To be made in the image and likeness of God. What does that phrase mean, the image of God? And of course, there's all kinds of things that we 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 could go here. I mean, does it mean that to be made in the image of God, that God has, you know, 10 fingers and 10 toes like we do? Well, probably not. This is speculative. I've never seen God. But to think in those terms that God looks like us, and that's what the image of God means, is to make God in our image instead of the other way around. No, no, no. I mean, There's, of course, books and books and books that are written about this question of what is the image of God? So so I wanna trace out uh, some three common ideas that people um, oftentimes think of as as the image of God and how we talk about this. And it's really helpful, this kind of matrix as we think through what is the image of God and therefore then what does it mean for us to be made in this image, for this to be our identity? So three things that, that people have commonly thought of that it means for us to be made in the image of God. First, some have thought that what the image of God means is that we have spirituality. We have a soul. We have an ability to, to connect with God. We have this search for meaning that we have in our lives, which is tied to spirituality because we want our lives to matter. We have an ability to 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 have and a desire to, to have meaning in our life. And and this separates us from everything else that has been created. I mean, animals, which were also created on the sixth day, they don't have this search for meaning or or this desire or an ability to connect with God like we do. I mean, have you ever seen your dog concerned that his life isn't going anywhere? Of course not, because your dog doesn't have spirituality. Another thing that that people have commonly thought that this means um, is that is that uh, the image of likeness of God is a reference to how we have morality. Humans are unique in our ability to weigh right from wrong. So even though we fail in our ability to do right, so often we still have a sense of what's right and wrong. We call that ethics. And and it seems to be inborn that we have this conscience that guides us and makes us feel guilty when we do wrong. And again, this is unique to humans. None, None of the other creation or creatures live in this kind of way. And then third, some of us have thought, some have thought that the image and likeness of God is a reference to the inherent dignity that is given to all human beings. Everyone deserves dignity and respect because they are made in the image and likeness of God. So while we respect all of God's good creatures and all that he has made his creation, humans have a special level of dignity that is unique from everything else. I've heard it said that this is why an animal can be killed, but only a human can be murdered. There's a certain level of dignity, a special dignity that is given to humans. So you think about what is the image of God? You know, which one is it? Is it that we have spirituality? Is that we have morality? Is that we have dignity? And it's like, yes, I think it's it's like it's all of those things. But the first thing that the Bible says about people, about you, me, and everyone, is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. This is who we are at our core. But then the snake comes along and challenges this point. He's like, no, 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 no. Once you eat of the fruit, once you go your own way, then you'll find out who you really are. It's almost as if the snake is, is tempting us to go on some search for self-discovery when the reality is that God has already shared our identity with us. And yet there's something within us that is, that is desiring almost a redefinition of who we are. And so we meet this common and predictable deception that calls into question our created order, our purpose, who we are, our identity. And and when we find ourselves confused about our identity, all kinds of destruction follows. A great way to see this and an easy way to see this is to think about what does it mean to be an image bearer? And as you unpack that, especially if you use this matrix of spirituality, morality, and dignity, you can see that when we become confused about our identity and who we are, oftentimes those three areas are compromised which leads to all kinds of destruction. So let's unpack this a little bit and let's go through each one of these and I wanna show you how the destruction that follows when we become confused about who we really are. So let's start with this, this, um, this first one, spirituality, that we have a soul. As image bearers, we are designed and created with this unique ability to connect with God, to know God, to relate to God, to experience God. I mean, think about how often the Bible teaches us and encourages us to know God. I think about, for instance, Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Or Jeremiah 31. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. Or Philippians three, this is Paul, he says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I could go on and on with lots more examples like this because the Bible is full of this message to know the Lord. And when the Bible talks about knowing the Lord, it's not talking about knowing the Lord as, as we think sometimes about what knowing something means. For us as modern folks, we oftentimes think about knowledge as this thing that we gain in school. You read a book, you get a degree, you master a subject, and that's what it means to know. But in the, in the Bible, knowledge is much more personal. Knowledge is relational. When the Bible encourages us to know the Lord, it's not encouraging us to know things about the Lord, but it's to know the Lord personally and closely and intimately because in the bible knowledge is not about mastering a subject it's more like how a mother knows her child or how a shepherd knows his sheep or how a husband knows his wife it's personal it's intimate it's it's uh close this is the the knowledge that the, the, the bible wants us to have and so we can have all kinds of knowledge about god but what the Bible wants us to do is to have fellowship with God, to have friendship with God, to know God's presence, to know his leading, to know his voice, to experience this in our lives on a regular basis. And, and so I, I I know, though, that, that as we lose sight of our identity, that um, as an image bearer, that often one of the casualties then is that we lose sight of this truth that we have a soul, that we have this ability to connect with God. And and I know that just saying that out loud sounds really self-evident. I mean, I'm talking to a church, and probably if you're watching this, you are somebody who believes this, that you have a soul, or else I don't know why you'd be watching this, that you have some sort of sense of spirituality that is a desire within you. You know this about yourself. And and so as as self-evident as this might sound to someone who um, believes already that they have a soul, at the same time, lots and lots and lots of people don't realize this. And they certainly don't live as if it's true. Recently, I was talking to someone who was going through some tragedy in life. And tragedy, you know, has a way of bringing up questions that just don't have great answers. And so I was sitting down with this person talking through some of the things that she was struggling with and thinking through and questions she was asking and this angst that she kind of felt in her soul and she was not a believer. And so she's walking through this tragedy. I, I finally just had to stop her and I said, listen, the reason you have this angst, the reason you're struggling in this kind of way right now is because you have a soul and you've been ignoring that, but you have this sense of connecting with God that you have neglected. And so what, what happens, of course, then, is that, is that when we neglect this, this part of our life that we were meant to connect with God, then we find us, an emptiness within us. And, and of course, in modern life, you know, this is just how we think. You know, we live in a secular world where The knowledge of God, like personally, is not something that we think about. You know, secularism is a worldview that doesn't see God's activity in the world. It doesn't see God um, active in the world at all. And so to most people, you know, secularism is a very smart, reasonable approach to life. It's how lots and lots and lots of people live, but there's also a kind of depravity or maybe a kind of emptiness that attaches to secularism. And it's hard to see that emptiness when everything's going great. But but when you start to experience life and life happens to all of us, what you're going to discover is that there's a certain kind of emptiness to secularism because you're left with no one to turn to. You're left with no answers. You're left with no one to take care of you. And, and this is the point that I was trying to make to this woman. Like, you're feeling this angst because you have a soul. You've neglected this. And so there's a great deception here to ignore our soul. And when we do this, it destroys Many, many people. And by the way, this deception of ignoring our soul, it doesn't just happen to secular humanists or atheists or agnostics. I mean, there are a lot of Christians who believe in God like intellectually, but don't practically live a life connected to him, but instead practically live a secular life. I mean, think about how this plays out. For instance, let's say, um, you have someone that you work with that is difficult? We all do. So let's say you've got someone, who, how, how do you handle that? How do you handle that conflict? Do you actively pray for that person or pray for peace or pray for God to be at work in that relationship? Or do you try to handle it through some through some other way? Or let's say you've got to make a big decision. You're going to take a new job. You're going to buy a house. You're going to get married. Do you go and pray about these kinds of things and seek the Lord's will about this? Or do you just make spreadsheets to see the financial pros and cons? Or or let's say um, that you have things that you face in life and you're just, you know, questions you have. Do you go to the Bible for these kinds of things or do you go to Google? Like when life is good and you're experiencing good things in life, do you find yourself giving thanks for those good things or do you find yourself just taking them for granted? Like you can be someone who believes in God, but practically living a secular life But listen to the truth. You were made in the image and likeness of God. You, at your core, are an image bearer. You have a soul, a spirituality that is able to connect with God. Don't neglect this part of your life. Don't skim through experiences of prayer. Don't just go to church when it's convenient. Lean into this part of your life because what you're going to discover is your identity, your purpose, which is to know God. Second, let's talk about the second part about being image-bearing, that is that we have morality. We have ethics. We have this ability to know what's right and what's wrong. And certainly the Bible has a tremendous amount to say about the right kind of living. I mean, one of the main points of the Bible, we see this over and over and over again, is that life is binary. That's a biblical way to see life. Life is binary. It's this or it's that. I think about Jesus when he says this, either um, enter through the narrow gate For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So Jesus teaches that life is binary. There's a narrow path and a wide path. In Deuteronomy, we see the same kind of thing. Deuteronomy 30, see, I said before you today, life and prosperity, death and destruction, binary choice, it's this or it's that. If you read the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, you find that there's a choice between um, wisdom and folly. Throughout the New Testament, you see this choice between being conformed to the world or being transformed by the power of God. It's binary, it's this or it's that. And so again, as the, as the image of God gets twisted, though, one of the casualties is morality. So a common way of thinking in today's world, especially in our secular age, is that we are no more than animals. You see this very prevalently um, in the debate around sexual ethics and how this gets, ex- gets expressed where our desires uh, become what define us. And so anything that gets in the way of our desires is often thought to be repressive or oppressive. Um, and so the sexual ethics de- debate, our desires and what we feel on the inside, you know, they've come to define us. And, and if you listen to that debate, it's almost as if people are nothing more than their desires, their impulses, their instincts. And that's life as an animal. Of course, that doesn't just happen on sexual ethics. I mean, pay attention to how people talk about themselves, especially when their desires get elevated. Oftentimes, we hear people say things like, that's just who I am. I'm just that way. That's just me. I just run hot. I've got a temper. I always have. That's just who I am. Or, you know, I'm just a worrier. I've always been a worrier. I just, I just worry about everything. I'm just, that's, just, that's just who I am. Or I... You know what? I hold grudges. I just do. I just do that. I always have. That's just who I am. I don't get mad. I get even. That just. I just do that. Or or. Um, I like to work. I'm a workaholic. And just listen to this language. And as you listen to that language, how much of that language is identity language? This is just who I am. We become to define ourselves by our impulses and our desires and our instincts. That's an animal language, not an image bearer language. The truth is. You were made in the image and likeness of God. You have the capacity to live a life that honors God. You have a capacity for morality. You have a capacity to live above your instincts and urges and desires and impulses. Your life is not simply to be lived at the the mercy of your temptations, but rather those are not who you are because you were made in the image of likeness of God. That is who you are. You're an image bearer. Third, we have this last piece here, that to be an image bearer means that we have um, dignity. We have value and worth, simply because we were created in the image and likeness of God. Created with design and intention by one who loves us and who sees value within us. Again, I think about how the Bible describes the worth of people, including you. Jeremiah 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God sees value from the very beginning. Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Listen to that language there. There's so much value and worth in that language. Your works are wonderful. and I'm one of those works, by the way, and I know that full well. Where Jesus is talking to Matthew 6, he says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? you have so much value in the eyes of God. And this idea of dignity, just like morality and spirituality, I get it might sound self-evident, but we need to open up our eyes a little bit because this value of dignity, this understanding of dignity, it gets exploited in so many ways. Uh, The great writer Wendell Berry has this incredible essay called life is a miracle an essay against modern superstition just a wonderful title i love it so much Um, but the essay explores how we have started to think about ourselves collectively Um, we've started to think about ourselves differently um, because of what he and some other writers call scientism that might be a new term for you scientism scientism is not science by the way science is a very valuable thing scientism is when we elevate science to becoming our worldview. Like we look to science to answer life's hard questions. We look to science to give us purpose and meaning. And and people do this all the time where we start to put our hope in science and and, and let science tell us um, what's important, especially in our secular age. This happens all the time. And so Wendell Berry argues that, that one of the casualties of scientism is human dignity. So just as there is a tendency to see humans as animals, and when we do that, we sacrifice morality, well, there's also a tendency within scientism, to see human beings as no more than machines. And when we do that, we sacrifice our dignity. I mean, we don't have to think very deeply to see how this is true. I mean, think about just what a machine is. A machine is valuable because of its output. Um, machines are about effectiveness and efficiency. I can't tell you how many books I have on my bookshelves, especially leadership books, that are all about how to grow in effectiveness and efficiency and achievement and have greater productivity and greater output, all of that is machine language because my value begins to be found in in, in those things that I'm accomplishing. Machines are all about harnessing resources for greater output. I mean, I think about some of the ways we talk about people. Sometimes people will talk about their jobs as I'm just a cog. Or some of us might have jobs in HR, which means human resources. Like as if humans are a resource for our own purposes? Or what do you think the term net worth implies about dignity and value? I mean, this is all machine kind of language where the value of our life is based on the output of what we accomplish and what we achieve and what we gain. This is why Sabbath keeping is such a difficult practice for modern Christians because here's a day a week where where the whole point of output and accomplishment is set aside for for not pursuing those things. But here's the thing, you're not a machine. (laughs) The value of your life is not measurable. Your worth is not found in what you accomplish or how much you produce or how high you climb. And yet so many of us, we find our worth, our identity, our value in what we accomplish. The truth is, God's opinion of you is the only opinion in the entire universe that matters. And God is not impressed by your net worth. God is not impressed by how high you climb in your career. God is not impressed by how many trophies you have on the wall. God is not impressed by how many likes you have on Instagram. I have to think about it like this god is not impressed by how big the church grows because god has already provided me all the value i already have god doesn't give more value because he's impressed by us no no, no. his opinion is the only one that matters the reason why he's not impressed by these accomplishments and achievements is because you could have no more value in the eyes of God than you already have. He cannot love you any more than he already loves you. You are an image bearer, you have dignity and worth simply and only because the creator of all things, your father in heaven, finds you valuable and he finds you worthwhile and he finds you enjoyable. So much so, that he gave his one and only son for you. So there's a common and predictable deception here to lose sight of who we really are, to begin to believe lies about our identity and what brings us purpose and value in life. And again, as we've said throughout this series, it's so easy sometimes to see deception in other people and so hard to see in ourselves, and yet, as we think about ourselves, one of the best ways to see this is through the fruit of deception, which is destruction. And so where we see destruction in life, we need to be asking ourselves, am I experiencing that destruction, that dysfunction, that sin that I can't seem to get over, that conflict I just keep having, the, the, the striving for meaning that I just have, the, the, ability to, the inability to forgive other people, whatever it is that I, I just keep struggling with, am I having those problems in my life because I've bought into a deception? And maybe, just maybe, It's a deception where I've forgotten who I really am, an image bearer made to live in relationship with God, made to live in a life that pleases God and made with inherent value and worth that I don't have to go searching for that anywhere else, but in Him because I'm an image bearer. And through Jesus, as we come to Him, what we find is that identity, it just gets reinforced. we we begin to live into it in a new way as it begins to grow inside of us, as we find our identity, our purpose, our meaning in Him. Who are we? We are image bearers, made in the image and likeness of God. This is the core, central fact of who you are. Let's pray. So Father, today, as we consider this common and predictable deception that so many of us fall prey to, For some of us, we neglect our souls. We skim through a spiritual life. Maybe we believe intellectually things about you, but we don't really know you. We don't spend time getting to know you, to walk in fellowship and friendship with you, and we need to confess this and acknowledge this today. For others of us, maybe it's questions of morality where we have just followed our hearts. We've lived into our temptations. We've thought that I just can't seem to get over this because this is just who I am, when in reality, you have given us the ability to live in a different kind of way. And through Jesus Christ, we can find the transformation of the Holy Spirit to live on the narrow path. Or maybe others of us, we've been looking for our worth and our dignity through what we do, what we accomplish, what we achieve, what our output is, which is just to be a machine. When in reality, we can have no more value than we already do because of who you say that we are. Would you stir within us, again, this rediscovery of our true identity as those who bear your image. And as we follow you and seek after you and know you, would you grow this within us that we don't have to listen to the world, we don't have to listen to those around us. We simply discover who we are by knowing you. For anyone who's with us who doesn't know the goodness of God, the grace of God, and walking with Jesus Christ, we just wanna offer up a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sin and would you lead my life? We thank you for your grace and mercy that we always find in you. It's in your name that we pray today, amen. Thank you for listening to a Schweitzer podcast. We hope you found this message to be helpful and encouraging. If you enjoyed this experience, please remember to share us with your friends and neighbors. Thanks again for stopping by and remember, you are loved.